y'all. How are you? <laughs> I'm gonna cry. Oh my goodness, it's so good to be back. Team, you sound amazing. Thank you so much. Wow. I have missed you in this place. You are hard to find. I don't know if you know this. Um, it's, you don't exist lots of other places. Tiny little bits of you, but to get you all these sparks together in one giant spark, super special. Thank you all for being here. And uh, wow. So Kevin's back too. Yay! <laughs> We're all set. Oh my goodness. So first of all, i just like to start by saying thank you. Thank you all so much for continuing to be Spark. Um, thank you for being a bright light, um, whether we are near or far geographically. Thank you to all of you who continue to come and love your neighbors and care for one another and make the coffee and set up hospitality and set up chairs and tear down chairs. That's like the hardest part sometimes, like the, the fun part's getting ready, the hard part's when it's all done, you have to put it away. Um, so thank you to every single person um, who has come and helped. I want to give a specific additional shout out to Debbie who held down the fort. She is the executive director who came just in time for us to leave. So we're really deeply grateful um, that we could just so confidently leave everything in her hands and ignore every email that came through knowing she was going to take great care of that, except the important ones where she'd be like, oh, by the way. (laughs) Um, And so really grateful for that and grateful too for the amazing teaching team that you had all summer with Pastor Marcus and Omer and Tom and Mark and just the amazing worship team, all of that, just incredible. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Pastor Kevin, or or sorry, just Kevin, uh, is there anything, old habits die hard, uh, is there anything you wanted to say? We covered it all? Yep. He's still Pastor Kevin, yeah. So thank you guys so much. Thanks for continuing to do all that. It is great to be here and be together. Uh, A couple really fun things that happened while we were in Israel or that we got to see while we were in Israel. It didn't happen while we were there. During the pandemic, during COVID, there had been a big rain, and it kind of washed out a false floor at Caesarea Philippi, also called, called Banyas. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and there's a place there where they worshiped the goat god Pan, like where we get the name Panic and Pandemonium. Um, They did untoward things with the goat god Pan. Um, And so that place um, also has a cave there where water before an earthquake used to flow directly out. That cave's called the Gate of Hades. And it's also the place where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And uh, they say, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and some say this. And he goes, yes, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of a dove, that was not revealed to you by man, but by God above. And on this rock, I will build my church. And that has become an important interpretation for particularly the early church, early Catholic church, where they were saying, okay, so Peter's confession, Petros, Peter, rock, that is the confession we build our church on. But some early Christians took that very, very literally and actually built a church right there that we didn't know of previously and during the pandemic and a weather storm was revealed. So you guys, how cool is that? I think it's so awesome. I freaked out the whole time we were staying there and Kevin's giving this great talk and I'm bouncing because I'm like, the 
church is right there. Like, and on this rock, I will build my church. And they're like, got it. So that's like a site plan. Uh, we'll just get that approved by the city council. And we're just going to build that right here. Because then Jesus says this great thing. And the gates of Hades will not stand against it. And there's the gates of Hades right there. So there's a rock, there's a church. And you can go see a mosaic. And you can see some crosses carved in. So I'd never seen that in person. And it's just really recently been excavated and explored. So that was incredible to see in person. So thank you for sending us with a group of Sparkers and Sparker adjacents to be able to go and see that. Man, the early church, they just did it, right? They're like, got it. Okay, go, go, God panned nothing on us. We will build our church right here. And there's even a testimony from a nun from the fourth century who went there. She was like, yeah, it's really nice. So it's not a good church. <clears throat> um, and we had, we met some friends. They're uh, new friends to us, but old friends to others, um, just down the three in the corner, a husband, wife, and their little son. Um, and then the dig here at Telaraj, Tel- which is right near the point of the Sea of Galilee. They, they started digging there, and they were saying, we think this is the real Bethsaida and not the one up the hill that I've taken many of you to and said maybe scholars think this is Old Testament site Geshur and Bethsaida, but I'm now going to refer to that as fake Sida because this seems to be the real deal, and they've just excavated. And Professor Stephen Notley, who is an acquaintance and um, good friends with some good friends of ours, um, is leading that excavation. And you can go in October and go and volunteer again. They have found a mosaic there that references the Apostle Peter. Um, so really interesting stuff happening in that area. And so those are just two of the highlights for me personally. We didn't actually get to go and see this because it's very uh, swampy right around. And, and there's just so much to see. But I at least wanted to tell you that if you've been to Bait Sida with me, you must now call it fake Sida. Um, and we'll go and hopefully see the real thing at some point. There were some incredible highlights. And I'll talk more about those um, as we kind of go through our passage But I at least wanted to show you those two because they're just incredible to see the early church um, letting the message of Jesus thrive in that place and time. So grateful for those continued lessons. We're going to turn our hearts now to our continued study of the Gospel of John. And our title for our sermon this evening is The House Was Filled with Fragrance. Our passage comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. That happened just a chapter ago as you guys preached through. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because, here's an editorial comment. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Wow. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And when the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of what Jesus, because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. 
And that ends our John chapter 12 passage for our teach. And I just want to note that this story is actually told in all four of our Gospels. In some form or another, there's a story of a woman who anoints Jesus with oil. It's in Matthew chapter 26, it's in Mark 14, it's in Luke 7. In the various passages, we'll find that Jesus is either in Lazarus' house or he's in the house of, of Simon the leper. Um, sometimes he's in Bethany, sometimes maybe we're not quite sure exactly where he is. Sometimes the woman is given a name, Mary. Sometimes she is just the woman, a woman, or a woman who is a sinner. Now, as we open up this passage, let's look at a few things and try to sort of orient ourselves into the story. First of all, we know the time, don't we? Six days before the Passover. So that actually means that things are starting to get underway for this festival of freedom that is exciting and is going to be the retelling and reenactment of God's setting Israel free out of Pharaoh and Egypt thousands of years before, 1,000 years before. 1,500 years, depends on when you date Moses in the Exodus. Jesus came to Bethany and the home of Lazarus who made raised from the dead. So where is he? Where is Bethany? Bethany's about a mile outside of Jerusalem. So definitely not just around the corner, but not far. Over the Mount of Olives as you would go in. And probably one of the last stops you would have on your way, if you were traveling from Galilee to go up to Jerusalem, you'd pass through Jericho and then start heading up and you'd kind of run into Bethany. We don't know exactly what the name means, but here's some potential insights. In Jerome's version of Eusebius' Amosticon, which kind of like tracks the geography of the land and tells you different places we're going to be, the meaning of Bethany is defined as domus afflictionis, or house of affliction. And Bethany was the last station on that route from Galilee to Jerusalem after crossing through Jericho up into the highlands. The Hebrew Bet-ani means house of the poor, or house of affliction, or poverty. And semantically speaking, it could just be the poor house. So based on historical sources and linguistic evidence, people suggest, theologians and historians suggest, that Bethany may have been the site of an almshouse and the village was used as a center for carrying the sick and aiding the destitute and pilgrims to Jerusalem. Bethany is mentioned as the place of the raising of Lazarus, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on on Palm Sunday. It's Jesus' lodging place during the week of Passover, according to some of our accounts, and the home of Simon the leper, Jesus' location prior to his ascension. And it's also Jesus' location prior to his ascension into heaven. Now, this might be why it says what it says in our text, where Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. That doesn't mean Jesus is saying, hey, forget about the poor. You don't really care. They're always here. That's why you don't have to feed or take care of them. It's more maybe centered on where he's standing when it happens. Hey, the poor are always here, but I am not always here in this place. Maybe if Bethany is the place of healing, of that house of affliction, where people would be taken care of, that might be the reason why Jesus says what he says. So it has more to do where he's sitting and where, where the event happens than it has to do with any sort of practical or theological implication of the poor. Basically, I'd like to say that this is not justification for saying we should not be a welfare state, right? This is not a political statement or a statement, and even an economical statement, or whether or not you should be compassionate towards the poor. I think it has to do with where Jesus is when it happens. There's also maybe some indication that people weren't very interested in having the most destitute or in need right next to the temple in Jerusalem, although, of course, we know that they were there and begging. But maybe there'd be a place where people could, sort of like a hospital, be well taken care of in that village. 
Let's now ask another question. As Mary sits down, she opens up nard. Now, this is something you guys all normally have on your shopping list, right? When you go to Whole Foods now, yes? Okay, so what is this perfume? Where does it come from? What is it like? And why is it important? It's a perennial herb, and it's an oil-producing plant. It's particularly actually down by the roots of the plant, but as it gets crushed, it makes this incredibly strong and pleasant-scented perfume. It's native to, not Israel, the Himalayas, Western Asia, and India. So what does that immediately tell you about this, this plant product? It's imported. It's expensive, right? It's not something that's right available right there. I mean, they just didn't reach down and grab just the thing that was immediately growing next to them. And it also tells you that again and again, I want to keep telling you this, the place where God puts God's people is a land between. It's a place where there's trade routes. And so there's spice routes and there's import-export business and there's money to be had on those trade routes because there's trade to be had. So here we have this beautiful, amazing nard and the roots and spike-like woolly young stems are dried before the leaves unfold and are used for making perfume. In this time period, a Roman pound is equal to slightly more than 320 grams or about 12 ounces. So the content of the jar was very, very expensive. At least a day's wage, if not more. Now, I have some here, because Debbie helped me find it. I knew I had it in the office somewhere. Some spike nard here that people, you know, tried to figure out what it might have smelled like. It's so good, you guys. I love it. So I'm going to pass it around, okay? And you guys can smell a little bit of it. And just, you can open up, and you can even take a bit, you know, just dab it right here behind your ears. And it smells so good. And we'll see how it, how the place smells when we're done. It's strong, but it's and if you and I'm sorry if somebody's like perfume sensitive, but it says the house was filled, so I don't know what to do about it. Okay, okay. So this is quite a courageous act of worship on Mary's part, and I love this quote again from the amazing scholar um, in Berkeley. Sandra Schneiders, I can't ever say her name, my eyes are so bad, you guys. I went to my 30th high school reunion, it was technically 31st because of COVID, it was 30th, and I was so gratified to see everybody doing this. <laughs> I was like, my people, I'm really happy. Okay. Uh, she says this, Jesus approves of this woman's original religious initiative. Mary does not express her relationship to Jesus in a conventional way, nor does she ask permission of anyone, either of Jesus' male disciples, represented by Judas, or even of Lazarus, who was presumably head of the house, to act as she does. She's not going to ask permission. She just starts to do this incredible act of worship. She assumes the right as a disciple to decide what form her ministry to Jesus should take. And when another disciple objects, that person is silenced by Jesus himself. Each of the synoptics has a version of this element of the episode, each with a different male or group of males objecting, which makes one aware of how early the attempt of men to control the discipleship and ministry of women began in the Christian community. I like the quote, but I'd also just say, I think that that's just a thing. I don't think it happens only in the Christian community. I think it's just a thing that happens in our world. This is from her commentary, written that you may believe. So a beautiful act of worship that this woman, Mary, comes into this place or is already in the location or perhaps it's her home. We can talk about all of these discussions in just a moment. 
And in this space, then, she does this incredible act of worship that causes the entire house to be filled with that fragrance, that overwhelming fragrance in that space. So who is she? Who is this Mary that does this? Well, early church fathers of both the East and the West debated whether the Mary Magdalene, the one who is also healed from demons, maybe, or the Mary of Bethany were maybe the same people. Was it the same person? Or are there just multiple Marys? Miriam is the name. It's Moses' sister, Moshe and Miriam. It's a very popular name. Lots of people named their daughters Miriam. Lots of people named their daughters lots of like the same names repeatedly. Same with men, too. There was a story years ago of some acquaintances who were on... Um, on a mission in a village, and while they were there, um, a baby was born. And they saw that the tradition was to take the name of every male in the village and put their name in the basket in this particular village, and then they would just pick that name out, and then that would be the name of the child. And so repeatedly over and over again, there were many people named the same thing. And in this particular village, many people named Mohammed just because that was the most common name and was put in and most often picked out. But because this American family was there and their young son was there, I think it was like, like, his name was Paul or James or something like that, they had put his name in the basket too at the insistence of the community, and that was the name that was pulled. So apparently at some place in some village, there's like one outlier with that one name, right? It's kind of a fun story. I don't know if it's, maybe it's apocryphal, it doesn't really exist, but I do know that in a lot of places, you're named after your family. You're named after your cousins. So it wouldn't be uncommon for them to be, for them to be several Marys, and we know that there are several as we read the gospel account. Who's one of the most famous Marys right away? Jesus's mother, right? So we know right away there's going to be several Miriams and Marys. But whether it is Mary Magdalene or as Diana Butler Bass recently gave this message, a sermon at the Wild Goose Festival, and then, I don't know, like six different people from Spark or Spark Adjacent sent us individually a link to this incredible message and sermon, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Is it Mary Magdalene? Well, where does the word Magdalene come from? It comes from the word Migdal or Magdala, which means tower. And so people have said, oh, Mary comes from, how do we distinguish between the Miriams? She's the Miriam that comes from Migdal. And Migdal, they've said, is like a town right along the Sea of Galilee, sort of a bit on the western, it's on the western side towards the south, towards Tiberias, just a little bit. But the word also just means tower, so maybe her name is Mary the Tower, Similar to, let's say, uh, Deborah in your Bible, it says that Deborah is the wife of Lapidot, it'll say in our translations. But in the Hebrew, it's actually Eshet Lapidot, and Lapidot means flames or fiery. So it could be a better translation would be Deborah the fiery woman, like the fiery woman, rather than the wife of a name that we don't have any record of. Here we have also in our Gospels, we have people called like, the Simon the Zealot. So there's a descriptor. Which Simon are we talking about? Where are we talking about the one who's the Zealot? Which Matthew are we talking about? We're talking about the one that's a tax collector. Which uh, Judas are we talking about? We're talking about Ish Judas Iscariot, which simply means Ish Kiriot, which can be the man from the village or the man from a village named Kiriot. Okay? So it's not uncommon for there to be some distinction. Oftentimes when they talk about Jesus, whose name was very common, Yeshua, why do, how do they say, how do they differentiate Jesus to in terms of the other Jesuses, Jesus, Ben, 
Yosef, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Okay? So we have those distinctives. We don't know, but I really like Diana Butler Bass and, and the scholarship that she's leaning in on and talking about there. And if you want to know more about that, we can sort of help you find it out. I just think we don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us, although it seems that the earliest manuscripts are going to tell us that in John 11 and 12, that the word Martha didn't exist initially. It does exist in Luke, but it does not initially exist in John 11 and 12. In the earliest papyrus, this is the argument that they're going to make. And instead, Mary is the sister of, there is, there is a Mary who's the sister of Lazarus, and then there's a Mary Magdalene. Here's what I'd like to say. We don't know, but whoever she is, she does a really awesome thing, and she stands firm in her worship of Christ. And then with this courage and steadfastness, then I, would do, I will say, I don't think it's a reach to suggest that she is also the one declaring in John 11 that Jesus is the Messiah and that she's also the one at the tomb declaring that Jesus has risen in John 20. It wouldn't be a surprise with this type of courageous, worshipful act in this space. So with all of that, then, I'd like to just take a moment to show you actually Migdal. Because not that long ago, sometime in the last, well, I'd say 15 to 20 years, they started doing an excavation at Migdal at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they did find what is now suggested to be the earliest recorded first century synagogue ever excavated in Galilee at a place called Migdal. It's incredible. It's one of seven first century synagogues in Israel found thus far. We can say thus far, and they might find more, right? And coins from the years 5 to 63 AD have been found within the synagogue. So it gives some indication that when it says in your Gospels, Jesus went to all of the synagogues in Galilee, he probably would have been there, and we can picture him in this space, and there are coins from his time period and before in this space. The synagogue is adorned with color mosaics and frescoes. So if Mary is from Migdal, this would have been her synagogue. So when you go there today, it's being ex- been excavated by the Franciscans. And this is an aerial view of before they built. This is actually how we first saw it years ago, where you could walk around and see how beautiful and set apart this synagogue is right by the shore of the sea. It's been built up today. This is the suggestion of what it would have looked like in the first century. So you have your typical synagogue pieces there, right? An entrance, a place for the Torah, chief seats, um, pillars. By the way, no separation between male or female do we find in any of the early archaeology for any of those first and second century synagogues and on for a little bit. In the center, they found what's now being referred to as the Magdala Stone, and it's It's at present the earliest known depiction of the second temple. Do you see the pillars on the side and two big jars and then a menorah? It contains the oldest carved image that we have of the second temple menorah. It's amazing, right? Super incredible. Here's one of the early coins from the time of Herod that was found there. And here's some of the frescoes that were found just beautiful painted. They also found some mansions and early mosaics. Um, and this is what, kind of what that looks like there. It's kind of pulled around, and this is a recreation. Because what the Franciscans then did, oh, and by the way, just, just this last year, they found another synagogue right across the road. So there was like first synagogue Magdala and second synagogue Magdala, in case you were wondering if early people, maybe it was just crowded and they had a lot of people. Who knows? And why was it called Tower? Well, we don't know for sure, except that Josephus does record that there's a town right along this about same part, the Sea of Galilee, that's known for its salted fish. 
And then salted fish is something that you want forever. And so they said there was a tower there that helped, like, helped to salt the fish, dry the fish out, and everyone was known by that. And so that's really why they're suggesting that's the place name. But as Diana Butler Bass suggests in the article everybody sent to me, um, it could be debated a little bit. They found a second synagogue that they're now excavating there. Um, and this is under the Israeli Antiquities Authority because they were just trying to widen the road. And then they did a dig and then they found. So now they can't widen the road there. But the Franciscans said, well, this is so beautiful that we'd like to build a church. Now, I want to let you know that I generally get really itchy at this point. And I'm like, please don't build a church over the historical remains. And I just really, can we just see it in its natural environment and not all built up? But you guys, this church is so beautiful. They really did a good job. Um, it's called Dukt in Altum, which draws its name from Luke 5.4, where Jesus instructs Simon Peter to launch into the deep or to put into deep water. So they built this sanctuary in this space, and that's the altar. It's a replica of the boats used in the first century. Isn't it? You'd like to go to church there, wouldn't you? Like the Sea of Galilee, just behind. Go out into the deep. And this is the invitation. And as the Franciscans built this and considered the site of Migdal and considered the place and the stories from Luke chapter 8 about these lists of women who are following Jesus, Mary of Magdalene, Miriam from Migdal, or Miriam the Tower being one of them, they decided to take the entrance and make it based upon early Byzantine churches, like an octagonal shape. And they took at the ceiling a beautiful quote from Pope St. Paul II, and they put it in Latin there, and here's the prayer. In this holy place, the church gives thanks to the most holy trinity of the mystery of woman, and for every woman, of her eternal dignity, and for the wonders God has worked in and through her in the history of humanity. You walk into this beautiful church that's right adjacent to the synagogue that everyone is going to attest to. Then, well, we think that most people say this is Migdal. And we want to remember women here. We want to remember their part of the story. So the eight pillars are based on a mosaic ring with the same design that was found in the synagogue, symbolizing Christianity's Jewish roots. The atrium's inspired in traditional octagonal Byzantine design, and the walls are painted in the same style and exact colors as the frescoes they found in the site. So they're trying to like sort of pull the history of that ancient first century synagogue into current modern worship. And when you walk into the women's atrium, there's eight pillars honoring women in the Bible. There's Mary Magdalene, Mary the Tower, Mary on the Tower, right? Susanna and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Mary and Martha, Salome, the mother of James and John, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, Mary, wife of Clopas. The seventh pillar is the many women who followed and supported Jesus from Mark chapter 15. And eight is the unmarked pillar for women of all time who love God and live by faith. I have never, ever stood in a church ever in my life that centered literally the story of women in the Bible. It was very moving. Here's one of the pillars, Susanna and Joanna, wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager. This is from Luke chapter 8. These women supported Jesus' ministry out of their own means. And then as you start to explore the chapel on the other side, there's mosaics telling the story of Jesus' encounter with Mary Magdalene. And there's a story down below that this painting that they put on the wall is called The Encounter of the Woman with the Issue of Blood, who knows to reach out and touch the corner of the prayer to lead the prayer shawl. And as you stand in that place, you're standing on part of the original first century marketplace of the Magdala Port. You're standing on a first century 
road that Jesus may have walked in, that the disciples and Mary and the women may have walked in. And this story of women has become so centered in this space that they've even started a Magdalena Institute. And this institute seeks to highlight issues of human dignity with an emphasis on the dignity of women and contributions of the feminine genius in both religious history and facets of life today. We hope to engage in important discussions and honor the essential characteristics that women offer humanity. These characteristics can be highlighted in prominent women of the Bible, women through history, and contemporary women. Is that amazing? You guys, just to make clear, this is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church that only has a male pope right now has built something right here to make sure that the story of women like this woman who anoints Jesus is centered and told again and again. You remember, no matter which part of the Synoptic Gospels or John that you read, no matter which gospel you read the story in, Jesus says, her act will be remembered. And now we have a church built right on the shore of Sea of Galilee that continues to remember this story. And we might say, oh, that's very nice. How modern, how lovely that they are starting to move and to shift and to center women's stories and the role of women in history. But I'd like to let you know that I actually don't think this is that uncommon. I think it's uncommon for us today, but I don't think it was uncommon in Jesus' day to hear the stories of women or to have them centered because Jesus did it. And we found in every early Christian prayer hall that we've so far discovered archaeologically in the land of Israel, we have found women mentioned. It's like there's a theme. It's like women and men together were these disciples and followers of Jesus. There's been an early Christian prayer hall at Megiddo that's been found that we still have not been able to see because it was found... Um, in a place where, unfortunately, there's a prison, um, but they're actually going to move the prison because it's such an inc- incredible prayer hall. And this prayer hall in Megiddo, by the way, this is Har Megiddo, like where we get the word Armageddon. So when you think of the end times in the battle, it's just, it's just a valley. It's, uh, there's a mountain and there's a valley. So, you know, there you go, Har Megiddo. Um, and here they found these incredible mosaics. And when you look at the mosaics closely, women are mentioned. This is the earliest Christian space that we found. Not like a first century synagogue, but the earliest Christian space we found. Pramila, Syracia, Dorothea, and Creste are four different women mentioned in the mosaics. Then this woman, the God-loving Akeptos, has offered Prosperin, the table to God, Jesus Christ, as a memorial. And those words, offered and as a memorial, are the words repeated in our story of the woman who anoints Jesus with oil. They took those same, and there's probably a table for the Eucharist, for the communion. And then they also have some men mentioned too. Guyana is also called Perfect Centurion, our brother who's made the pavement at his own expense as an act of liberality and who did the work. Now you could go, well, that's a one-off. That was one early Christian prayer hall that they found. But you know, no, you guys, look, just, just recently, and I've never seen this. It's covered up already. 1,600-year-old church mosaic puzzles out key role of women in early Christianity. And a newly uncovered mosaic, this is up in the northern Galilee towards the shore, towards Tyre and Sidon. A newly uncovered mosaic in the western Galilee speaks to the relatively high status of women in the early church. Dating to the 5th century, a Greek language inscription memorialized one, Susanna, Shoshana as a donor for the construction of a village of the, of the village church. Women, again, mentioned as leaders, as contributors into the community and into this Jesus narrative and story. 
And even now we have found, just recently, the first mention ever of Mary in a village right by in the Jezreel Valley by uh, Kibbutz Hanaton. And this Greek inscription provides evidence hitherto unknown. It's not far from Nazareth that there was a Byzantine area church which talks about Jesus' mother. Really incredible. Oh, and while we were there, they were also continuing to do excavations at the Hukok Synagogue, which is, you can't get to go see, and it's about 4th and 5th century, and Jody Magnus is very secretive. But she just announced that they have found the earliest known depictions of Deborah and Yael from the Book of Judges unearthed in Galilee. And they're not showing them to anybody yet, so they're just showing you a picture of Barak, the guy who doesn't get the credit, ironically, should just be Deborah and Yael. So we find women and the role of women and their story pulled out in the archaeology as well as in our text, and as well as by Jesus. In the third century, C.E. Hippolytus of Rome wrote in his commentary on the Song of Songs that the women who meet the risen Christ were made apostles to the apostles having been sent by Christ. Now, is this to suggest that there's no you know, patriarchy or misogyny in the early church? No, of course not. There is. However, we do have, again, historians like Rodney Stark who talk about the rise of Christianity, suggesting that the early church was attractive to women, including women of high status, because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. So I wonder if when we talk about how her fragrance, this fragrance of this spikenard perfume filled the whole house, Could we also see this as a picture and as a metaphor for the way in which her act of worship overwhelmed and filled the whole space that she was in? And that she got to say to everybody in that place and space, this is who we know Jesus to be, and this is how he deserves to be worshipped. I am attracted to a faith that centers these voices And to a Jesus who says, no, no, everyone's going to talk about this for the rest of time. Some people might even build churches in order to continue to tell the story. So during our time off, our extended vacation, I kind of regretted that I ever called it sabbatical. Sabbatical feels like a really heavy word, and you're supposed to come out with some, like, really intense reflections or tome afterwards. And I was like, I don't have time for that. I have an eight-year-old who wants to play. So um, I was grateful, though, for the rest. I was grateful for it for Kevin. I was grateful for after, you know, the two years plus of COVID and um, trying to kind of hold it all together. We just had some time away. And I'm deeply grateful to all of you for giving that to us and to the board for giving that to us and insisting on it. And I'm thankful for it. And I found that while I was in Israel, we were there for about five weeks, which is long for us. We typically like, you know, go for the two-week tour and then we'll stay for a week or so afterwards. But we had not been there, right, since before COVID. And so while I was there, even though we were been there for a while, and let me just say, there are things that are lovely about being there and there are things that are hard about being there and there are things that you just kind of want your bed, right? You just want to go home and, and, and see something normal. I found myself as the date for our flight started to approach, feeling like like one of those cats in the currents, like just my claws out and going, no, don't make me go on the plane. Don't drag me away. I have to stay here a little while longer. 
I was like, why do I feel this way? I have been here long enough. Like, I even tried to move our flight up a couple times, right? So it's like, we, we've been here long enough. We've, we've gotten COVID. We've av- tried to avoid it. We've gotten it. We've recovered. All of the things. Um, it was just felt like the pandemic. Like, when you walk into the buffets, it felt like there was salad team and hummus and meat and COVID and then <laughs> dessert and coffee. Um, and so it just felt like you weren't going to avoid it. And indeed, we did not, unfortunately. We're fine and grateful for it. But I felt like, you know, it's probably time to go home. Didn't want to go. Like, what is happening? Like, I'm afraid I'm never going to come back. Because I now live in a world where I don't know if all of a sudden everything shuts down and I can't come back again. So I just, I was like, oh, I'm trying to squeeze every last drop out. Because there's something for me about being there and about walking in the land for a very long time, I was in, uh, for like, so I've been doing pastoral ministry since I was 20, 21, 22. I'm 49. Up until Spark, I was not in a place where I got to teach regularly to peers. And so the only place where I could felt, like the only place on earth where I felt like I was no longer a round peg for a square hole was when I got to set foot in the land. And then people would listen to me, even though I was a woman, because they did not know where they were going. And so I had to say, okay, like we have to go on this path and, and they don't know where the bathrooms are. So I'm the only one that knows where the bathrooms are. I can tell them where the bathrooms are. And I'm the only one that knows like when the food is coming and how, right? So, so there's something there about being able to just say, let me open up this text and start to tell you about this Jesus that we know and how beautiful this is. And so, so, so much of it has become part of who I am. And how I, how I live, just, just walking around and telling the, the stories. To, walking around and seeing that, that the Jesus that is often portrayed to me from pulpits across North America is not, not necessarily always the Jesus that I can actually meet in the text. So I started squeezing it out and saying, no, don't take me. And I felt that way all summer. And I started wondering if any of you started feeling that way too. If as things started to open up and maybe you unfortunately got COVID, so then that made you feel a little bit more bold. You're like, well, I've already had it, so I might as well just go out and party. Or you decided, like, finally you got some time off. Or you, did anybody travel this summer? Did you try to do something this summer? Did you start to feel, are you ready to go back to school or work? Because I am not. I feel like, no, I'm going to need two to three more months of summer because I don't want it to end because I'm afraid it won't happen again. I really am, I don't know, I mean, it's not in my knower, right? But somewhere deep in my knower. And I started thinking about how we're all responding and reacting to that. And when people get asked, like, how are you doing with COVID? Just so you know, most people are like, not, do, like, one star, do not recommend, okay? Some people might have said, oh, it gave me more time with my family, or I was able to, you know, but most people are like, no, more negative than positive, which I think is the proper response to a pandemic that is lost to lots of people. And so as a result, people are like, I'm out, right? I don't want to do this anymore. So we're starting to see the great resignation. And people are like, how many times you go out, you see help wanted signs everywhere because people have just gone and bounced, right? They're all done. I'm going. And then people have also done the great divorce, right? People are like, and I have been with you too long for two years. So I'm out of here. Um, so those, those rates are skyrocketing and the church isn't any different. People are like, and I'm not doing that anymore. And And we're also responding to all of the other things that we see where we're going, well, I don't really want the politicization of my faith. I'm not really interested in white supremacy. Thank you much. I, uh, oh, so these systems I can't trust anymore. I can't trust in the fact that my church seems complicit. And so we have started to deconstruct, resign, 
get out of Dodge, hit the eject button, I'm out, including pastors. There's been a great resignation with pastors. I'm not going anywhere. I'm very happy. Um, and I'm very happy. Thank you for the time off. Um, but they list all the reasons why they're out. The pastor's like, and I'm out too. People are going. And it started making me think that we are still in a state of responding to some of the trauma that we've been part of. And I don't think we've all figured it out yet or sorted out what is reactive to climate chaos or systemic racial injustice or um, issues of oppression towards women or COVID or whatever it might be. But one of the things that I found while we were away that I really missed was all of you. I really missed this community. And on more than one occasion, I said to Kevin, oh, we have to go home because we can't find this anywhere else. Because where we would go, we would sit down and we would start to have conversation with different people. And we would find that, oh, this is the conversations you all are willing to have and the wrestling that you're willing to, to connect with. This is pretty unique. And one of the highlights, honestly, while I show you all those really cool stories and things that we can see, the highlight, and this is true every single time we go, is the community that gets built. The highlight is the community that happens. And that is true also here in this church. The highlight are the friends that people make. And this was true for, I think, everybody on the trip. They were sitting there going, oh, oh, like I'm not alone. There are other people out there who are also thinking, wrestling, um, healing, and sorting things through. And one of the highlights for me then was the community that we found at this place in Bethlehem with Dawood Nasar. And we hope to introduce you to him in person at some point in the next year or so. He is a Palestinian Christian. He's one of the only Palestinian Christians left in the land because of systemic oppression and injustice. And we sat with him and heard his story at Tent of Nations. And you can go and volunteer there. And it's really lovely and wonderful. I do great things. But as he spoke, you could hear the teachings of Jesus pouring forth. And the principles and practices that he has seen and continues, it was, it's kind of like sitting and listening in to early, to civil rights activists and everything else, of how he just says, I refuse to be an enemy with anyone, and I'm going to love my enemies. And we have much more to share about that, but that was the highlight, and it reminded me of the community that I'm part of. In the 2,000 years of church history, it reminds me of the community that I'm part of. When I read the story in John 12 with this woman, it reminds me of the community that I'm part of there as well as here, and how deeply grateful I am for the ways in which all of us are wrestling and trying to be more like Jesus. Here's my last note. I told you guys that I went to my 30th high school reunion. It's a thing, man. I went to, a, this is my public high school, public high school in Santa Rosa. Have anybody of you ever seen a John Hughes film like Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles, those kind of things? That was my high school. Like there was literally senior year, last day, there was a guy that wasn't going to graduate because he'd had too many absences, and then he was too drunk to attend class. And so his friends carried him from class to class so that he could still graduate and not have an app. It was like a scene out of like Weekend with Bernie's almost. Like it was just a weird. So my 10-year high school reunion I did go to with Kevin, and uh, a guy for 20 bucks drank the goldfish on the table. It was like still nobody had grown up. So when the 30th came around, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I didn't even buy my ticket actually until after the event. I just showed up. 
<laughs> because one of my good friends was going to be there, and I went. And you know what happened when I was there? I was like, because I was like, I'm not going to see anybody, and what do I do? Like, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. And the last time I told somebody that, they, like, cursed literally at my tenure. They were like, no, bleeping, bleeping, and oh, dear. And then there was lots more cursing um, as they were doing jello shots. So all of those things, I was like, I don't really need to go back to this place. But several people came up to me, and they said, oh, my goodness, thank you so much. What you post and what your church is doing makes me feel hope in the world. These are not Christians. They said, I show this post to my, I hold up my phone and say, see this girl, Danielle? She is at a church, and they aren't like that. And they're using you, all of you, and your efforts. I had like random people, not, not people I'm deep connected with like at all, come up and say, thank you so much. And I know they're talking about things like the fact that you all got recognized by the community and county that you live in for the work you've done to welcome the stranger into our community. I was so deeply grateful for you all. Grateful that I can brag about you and that your fragrance filled that space. And so we have an opportunity coming up that I'm super excited about where we get to partner again in a, in a Jewish Christian partnership. Although uh, Multi-Faith Voices of Peace and Justice is also going to try to join on in. So hopefully we'll spread out that tent even more. With a Breath of Air fundraiser through climate, uh, climate Resilient Communities here in East Palo Alto. Where we're going to work on getting those air purifiers into the homes of families that are most vulnerable to the air pollution in our area. Stanford has already told us that children and adults who are vulnerable when they're exposed to wildfire smoke and the pollution in our area, that they have immediate health consequences, but also that those health consequences are going to follow them for the rest of their lives. And you guys, we can be a neighbor, and for 150 bucks each, we can get a very good air purifier in their home that's slim, that won't take up a lot of space, that provides education. And you know what I get to do? I get to post about that. And when I go back to my 40th, people are going to be like, your church is so awesome. And I'm going, I know. So really, this is all just so I get good, good press at my next high school reunion. I'm just joking, of course. What I actually think is so beautiful about this is this shows again and again that the house is filled with the fragrance of how you worship courageously Jesus. How in the middle of resignations and deconstruction and discontentment and difficulties, you guys are hopefully, we're all still, maybe some of us just by the fingernails, holding on a little bit. We're all here in this room and we're trying to figure out how do we pour out our lives in worship to this Jesus who calls us to love our neighbor, to love even those we would consider enemies. So my hope for all of us, my prayer for us, is that we will be the fragrance of Christ, that we will fill the room that we're in. Overwhelm it, you guys. Just overwhelm all the weird spaces Overwhelm the narrative with the beautiful, good narrative of Jesus' tremendous love. And don't let anyone get between you and the Jesus you know. Don't let them get between you and the Jesus you know. He meets us here. As we turn our hearts towards Christ and ask to be made more aware of his presence and fragrance in this place. We remember the words that he gave us from the night in which he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, 
giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Spark all are welcome at this table.